0: Welcome to the Spirited Advocate Podcast, brought to you by the Distilled Spirits Council of the United States, the leading voice for the distilled spirits industry. Now your host, Chris Swanger. Welcome back to the Spirited Advocate Podcast, conversations with people who make the spirits industry so much more than what's just in the glass. I'm Chris Swanger, the president and CEO of the Distilled Spirits Council of the United States. Today on the show, we're very pleased to say that I'm joined by Brent Luby, one of the co-founders and the CEO of Desert Door, a unique Texas distillery specializing in Sotol, a spirit that is distilled from the Sotol plant that is a native of the Chihuahua Desert, where hundreds of years, this spiky, Desert Succulent has been used by indigenous people for everything from tools to food to, of course, a fermented drink. And now a fine spirit handmade in Driftwood, Texas, so pleased to join me in welcoming Brent to the show today. Hey, welcome, Brent. What are you sipping today? I've got a little surprise,
1: but what are you sipping today? Right now, I'm sipping a little tea, but I bet you I could probably reach for a little something as well with the help of my daughter, who's just right behind the bar. Awesome. Let's get into this.
0: This is an exciting podcast. Before we get into all the amazing work that you and your partners at Desert Door are doing, let's just take a moment for the audience to learn about SOTO. And if you're a Texan, like Britt and I, you can say SOTO. But it's a plant and a spirit that comes from the Southwest that might be unfamiliar for most of y'all. But just tell us a little bit about the plant and educate us, the history and its native peoples and so
1: forth. Thanks, Chris. That's really what we're trying to do is tell a 10,000-year-old history about this part of the world that's largely been forgotten. So the Sotol is a generic name for... 22 species in the genus of the Dasylirion. So it's a second cousin to agave, but it's agave's more vibrant, smoother, more flavorful cousin, if you will. And when I say 10,000 years, the nomadic peoples, the indigenous peoples that would follow the migratory proteins, they would pit-hurst oven cook along the way, whatever mother nature would provide for them. And then in Southwest Texas and Northern Mexico, Southern New Mexico, Southeast Arizona, what we now know as the Chihuahuan Desert, what they cooked was sotol. So they would use it as a source of sustenance. They would use it as a tool for eating and drinking. It actually has the nickname, the desert spoon. They would dethorn the leaves, use it as a source of material for weaving baskets, hats, even caskets. The stalk is like lightweight carbon fiber steel. They would use that as a tool for weapons and for hunting. And then really the cool thing and how the nature of our queens is about archaeologists triage that early as 800 years ago, that the indigenous peoples discovered that you could add water to the cooked plants and that it would ferment, and you could get like a 2% ish pulque like substance off of it. That with, so the evidence of fermentation out here in Southwest Texas near Fort Stockton. And then there's a ranch, the Meyer Spring Ranch, which is just about four or five miles south of the Desert Door Ranch, has some of the world's best preserved petroglyphs. And it shows the native peoples imbibing, paying homage to the plant, the Sotol plant. And so they triaged it like they were using the plant as an intoxicant during ceremonies. And then so you're like, it's the first alcoholic beverage consumed in this part of the world. And then you fast forward when the Spaniards came over. They brought the European distillation technology in the 1600s. And now we have what we know today as Sotol. And so it's just got this amazingly rich history that what we believe, or we've theorized, was just all lost to prohibition. It was first commercially distilled by a little company in El Paso in the late 19th century called West Texas Sotol Products, where they both made consumable and industrial-grade alcohol And the last that we saw on them in our research was roughly 1908. And so we could only surmise that it was just all lost to prohibition. It died as a result
0: of prohibition. That's right. Look, audience, if your curiosity level isn't high at this point, it should be really intriguing. And it's just what's so fascinating about our industry. Brent, let's fast forward to today. Tell us a little bit about how y'all are harvesting and processing the plant to make desert door Spirit.
1: So one of our core values here at Desert Door is connection. And that was a result of we're taking Mother Nature's bounty and we got connected with the land that we Texans love around here. You understand what I'm saying? To those on the inside, we just call it pride. But to the outside, it can look a little bit unbridled arrogance, but we just call it pride here, right? And we just got connected with the land. And so when we first started this project that was what would become Desert Door was a class project at the University of Texas, Not to discuss politics, Chris, I'm sorry about that, but yeah, we will go there. But we weren't very good at it on a lot of respects. We weren't very efficient in our process, but we always approached it from the sustainability aspect. When we first started, it was taking us roughly four plates to squeeze out one of these. And we were like, guys, this isn't scalable and it's not responsible. And so we worked really hard on the sustainability and regenerative aspects of not just our harvesting, but the way we process as well. And so the way we approach our harvesting is that we wild harvest. So it's important to know for the audience that it does not require any water. There's no fertilizers. There's no herbicides. There's no pesticides. There's no any other sides. And we only harvest roughly 20 to 25% available plants per acre. And we don't harvest plants that are in any form of bloom. This plant requires both a male and a female plant. It seeds and it pollinates. It can bloom multiple times throughout its lifespan. So it's not a one-and-done most agaves. So we do not harvest the plant unless it's mature, and it cannot be in any form of bloom because we need the plant to regenerate. But we also, if you were to harvest the plant while it's in bloom, all of those sugars are being taken up from the core to push up that stock. so your yields on it would be absolutely horrible anyway. We've also developed a semi-mechanized process to our harvesting technique. Think of like a chef's mandolin to where we trim the leaves off in the field to help with the soil erosion. And then we basically shear the heart of the plant off, leaving the root structure intact, giving the plant the ability to regenerate. So we're in our nascent stages of studying that, but it does give it the opportunity to regenerate. Matter of fact, I've got a plant out here. We had we so tall hearts around the property at our distillery, just to show because people always want to know what is it. We had a plant that was sitting out there, literally, it's sitting out there for six months. And all of a sudden, it started to shoot up a stalk. A heart sitting on top of a barrel, So I was like, you know what? You get another chance. So I kept it wet, and we planted it out front, and it's still going.
0: That is awesome. So Brent, with that, the regional origin, southwest Texas, northern Mexico, would some assume it's a lot like tequila? Obviously, the agave plant, there's a lot of similarities in their kin. But tell us about the flavor profile of Sotol and how it differs from other
1: types of spirits
0: like tequila.
1: It's very interesting. They are you are correct. They are like second cousins. They're both in the subfamily of Asparagusia, and on the nose, they're very similar. But that's where it stops. There's just a real depth of flavor. Oh yeah, no. God bless my daughter. It was right here. She's got me hooked up. But it just has a real depth of it too. I like to think it tells you what it is, and then it takes you to where it's from. As drinkers are out there looking for new flavor profiles, we've seen that a lot of promiscuity. I think, and from the spirit consumption. Standpoint, the end consumer is looking for something, and they're just looking for something that's got a little bit more to it with less additives in it. And what this, I think, provides for the consumer is a more flavorful, smoother spirit than a tequila, but it's softer, more delicate than a mezcal. Sometimes I love a good smoky mezcal. I love a good single malt La Scotch, but that's not for every consumer out there. And this provides people, I think, with that level of experience, but it's just softer and more delicate. And then we have our age product that you're sipping on as well, but that's what I believe it provides. But for everybody, we're talking to a retired
0: naval aviator, a patriot in every regard. Tell us about Desert Doors founding, just the story behind that, because that is just as compelling
1: of what you're doing with the liquid. I hope my daughter doesn't start laughing at this, but it was really interesting as we were making a family choice, you get to a point you have to make a decision Are you going to continue on or is it time to stop the journey? And after 21 years of just an amazing experience and the privilege of serving in the United States Marine Corps and the privilege of giving back to this country that has given me and so many other folks an opportunity, I left the private sector. I'm a mechanical engineer by degree. And I left the private sector with the visions of flying gray jets, landing on boats and blowing stuff up. That's what I wanted to do. And that was peacetime. And I got to do all of that which is the amazing thing that the United States government trusted a young man enough with the keys to really expensive equipment and let me fly it all over the planet. And it was just a beautiful ride. But as it was time to, as a family, decide what we wanted to do, I asked my boss, because I was at the crossroads, and asked my boss simply if he'd help me get closer to my girls because we'd always been separated and he understood it. And agreed with it in principle, but he didn't agree with it in the sense that he didn't think it was the right time for me to make a choice. But God bless him. G-Men, General Sofji, if you're out there listening to this, not many men are kind enough to put a bullet in the head of your career, but he, thankfully he did for me. And so I came home, back to Austin. I got a staff job in San Antonio to retire out. And I had run some really large organizations in the Marine Corps because you don't just get to fly jets and look cool. You have other responsibilities. And I was the operations officer. I'm a beans, bullets, logistics guy by trade. That's all I know. And I'd run the largest marine air group in the world where I had 4,400 people under my purview for the care feeding and training of, had 8 billion in assets and a $300 million annual operating budget into which I shared with my wife. I'm pretty sure the person with that level of responsibility in the private sector probably makes more money than this kid does in the Marine Corps. So I said, what about, because naturally after flying for 21 years, that's really the one thing you're qualified to do. I said, the natural segue is to go to the airlines. And so I asked her, I was like, what are your thoughts about me going back to business school and learning how to communicate with the private sector and parlaying those skills into something meaningful? And we agreed that was going to be a great segue. Let's just go see what it does. I enrolled at the University of Texas, the executive MBA program at the Macomb School. And that's where I met my two partners that were going to change my family and my pathway, right? Both veterans met a Navy SEAL sniper, Mr. Judson Kaufman, and an Army intel analyst, Mr. Ryan Campbell. And Ryan knew exactly what he wanted to do when he went there. He had a completely different vision of this. And I thought I was going to go back there to meet folks and then get a job, right? Not go create jobs. And he talked me into taking this class called New Venture Creation, And as it sounds, the class, you form a team, the team becomes a company, you come up with an idea, you do the market research, the market validation, pro formas, market strategy, exit strategy, business plan, pitch deck, and that's the class. And Ryan and I were doing what graduate students do, try to solve the world's problems. We were off on this, we were going to fly cargo drones. We were going to compete with FedEx without the pilots, right? And Judson joined the team late and was like the voice of reason. He was like, guys, this is the only class in this entire curriculum that we get to choose what we study. Could we at least study something fun? Because none of us had any idea that we were going to leave the abstract for the marketplace. We were just trying to get a job or get a grade rather. And I was like, sure, what did you want to do? And he's like, I wanted to, always wanted to start a distillery. And I was like, oh, that appeals to the marine aviator and me. And so we're like, okay, let's go down on that. And we're like, what do we want to distill? And we're like, I don't know, but let's go down that path. And that was the first domino to tip. And then we started, we went through so many ideas, Chris, and all of them were really far-fetched. And one thing that nobody realizes I think I've shared with you that I was born in Sweetwater. And so I had this idea that we're going to craft the world's finest bourbon, and we're going to call it Sweetwater just because. And for you guys out there that are looking for that, you can have that for free. I promise that's my gift to you. And just so everybody's aware, Sweetwater is about 45 minutes from my
0: hometown, and that's where they have the world's largest rattlesnake roundup. That's
1: right. So just imagine Sweetwater bourbon. That's right. I love the entendre. Yeah. But I had sold the guys on the concept of what Sammy Hagar did with Cabo Wabo. And then whatever we do, we're going to find a small distillery. We're going to inject capital, help them scale and distribute. This was a really compressed, tight timeline. And we just didn't have a lot of spare minutes in the day. And we were just trying to get a grade. They all bid off on that. We had a guy who came back from Puerto Vallarta and said, guys, have you heard this thing called Ricea? And I had heard of it, but was like, no, what is it? And he goes, it's fantastic. But At the time, it was really hard to find here in Central Texas. You can find it everywhere now, but it was really hard at the time. And a good friend of ours was going back down there the next week. And we said, hey, Mark, bring us back a bottle of that Ricea. He came back and his family started the first winery in the state of Texas. His brother was co-founder of a major, Deep Eddie Vodka, so he knows the space. And he came back and he was like, I can't find it. We're like, okay, now what? In Judson's research of Ricea, other things started popping up, like Bacanora, And then Sotol was one of them. And that's where it struck because Judson's from East Texas. He's from Longview, but he spent a lot of time in Fort Stockton as a kid. And he's like, I wonder if that's that Soto that my uncle and his friends moonshined when I was a kid. Turns out it was. And then, so I was like, okay, great. I knew about one or two Mexican Sotol distilleries. I was like, same concept. Then the next domino that tips is Ryan was like, it grows here. I want to make it. And keep in mind, we're still just trying to get a grade. We're just trying to get a grade. But I said, dude, you do realize that's a completely different problem set, right? And he goes, don't care. It grows here. We're going to make it. Okay. Because all he did was like triple the amount of work and research that we had to do to get this thing together. Because now we've got to build a distillery and a prize, all these other things, right? And so we did that and somehow squeezed it out. And we got the highest grade in the class. And then at the awards ceremony, like the celebration, hey, you survived the class, got the highest grade. So you pitch your plan to a panel of judges, and all of those judges are active investors at some level, so they're familiar with that, but there's no monies exchanging hands in the class. But at the conclusion, one of the judges came up and asked us if we were serious about this, and if we were, then her and her husband would like to talk to us. And that's the last piece that tit. we literally looking at each other out of the corner of our eyes. We're like, I don't know, are you serious about this? And I said, I'm retiring next summer, so I don't got a gig. I'm happy to give it a go, right? So then we bought a still because none of us knew how to distill. We bought a 15-gallon kettle, column kettle, and started just making various mash bills just to see if we could, one, make a mash, get it to ferment, and then not blow ourselves up in the process and not go blind at the end of it, right? And so we taught ourselves how to distill, and then the next step was, we've got to learn how to cook this plant because there's no YouTube videos or anything on how to cook so tall. And the plant starts growing natively about 20 miles from here and just north of San Antonio. And so Ryan and I were like jumping fence off highway 281 and like stealing plants off people's property and just chucking them in the trunk and just learning how to do it. 15 gallon kettle stovetop pressure cooker, and a wood chipper that I bought off Craigslist for 400 bucks, and two six-gallon homebrew buckets is how we got our start. And that combined with the constructive feedback that we got from the class, because we knew we didn't have enough turn to actually really get into it, we did more research, updated our business plan, and then we took it to what's called the Texas Venture Labs Investment Competition, which before the world melted in 2020, it used to be held biannually. But any student around the country. You can enter this competition. It's industry agnostic. You come make this pitch. And if you get accepted to the competition, you make it to the first round. And then there was five groups of five, And you had to win your group to get to the final round. And the final round is where it got really hot because there's actual money exchanging here. And out of 50, Desert Door placed third, or as us military guys like to refer to as second loser. And we were so upset about that. But it was our first check. Then we took that constructive feedback because it was constructive and modestly hostile feedback. And again, did more research, updated the business plan again. And then that's when we decided in February of 2017 that then we could go speak to our friends and family and tell them about what we were aspiring to do. That is awesome. It's an amazing story. Probably during all
0: of that, even doing great research for your original paper you might not realize some of the challenges you would face. The regulatory challenges, the marketplace challenges, and all of the above. Obviously, highlight some of those top-line challenges that were presented to you, but what advice would you
1: give to someone that has a similar idea along the way? My advice would be to have extreme patience, be very thoughtful and methodic in your approach, and realize that there are going to be challenges And first and foremost, you have to 100% believe. And if you have any doubt, don't take another step because- You got to be all in. You got to be all in because if you're not willing to carry the water, nobody else is going to carry it for you. So you cannot expect that. There is no single lever that you can pull in this industry and make it work. It's a series of levers that you have to pull repeatedly and you have to have the resources And the advocacy. And so just to even open the doors of a distillery, if I'd had a checklist of everything that I needed to get done to just open the doors, it probably would not. Because there's a certain level of naivete required to get this thing open. Because you get to a certain point and you're like, it's unbelievable how far I still have to go. But then you look backwards and you're like, I've come too far. I can't turn back at this point. So you have to be all in, and there's going to be periods where you're going to be down about it. There's going to be periods of self-doubt. There's going to be periods of uncertainty, and you just have to believe and surround yourself with good people, people that you can inspire to help you realize those things, and eventually it will win out. So Brent,
0: so tall. maybe there's probably great awareness in Texas. You're still probably building that. But around the country, what are y'all trying to do to educate the consumer
1: Mm. for Desert Doors' perspective? Well, several things. I don't know if you saw, there was an article in The New Yorker here recently that came out. And so the word is starting to get out. And then we've also been working internationally as well. But we're working with the trades. We're working with the associations, whether it's in the off or the on, And that comes with that training, education, and advocacy. It starts at the ground level. It starts for whoever out there is trying to create a brand. It's easier if you're already in an established category. It's really even more challenging. It's one thing, just in an existing category, for anybody out there that's trying to start their own company, it's hard enough because you're trying to affect change. You're trying to change people's habits, right? It's even more complex when you're trying to educate them and change their habits. Going over three mountains. That's right. Going over three mountains. Three mountains. Yeah. And so, and I mean, it starts with, at every level, you have to, there's no way around it. You have to educate at every level. So- it takes a community. It takes the entree from the owner, the general manager, the bed director, all the way down to the bartender. It takes in the off from every person in the systems from the buyers on down all the way to the store, to the individual specialist in every store, whether it's large format, fine wine, or any other store. And then it comes back to the distributor, right? From national level, if you're a national distribution, regional, to the general manager, assisted GM, the pad manager's, the regional, the district managers, and all the people underneath them, you have to show, find the truth, and go out and spend time and advocate with those people. And it's truly just about getting a share of mind at every level. And you back that all the way up to the warehouse. And I wish I could say that this was easy, but it's not. It's very, very time-consuming. And then ultimately, you got to compete for the share of mind of the consumer. That's right. That's just hitting the trade. That's right. That's just getting it to the shelf. Now you're in the market and the market gets a vote. And so how do you convince those people that this is something for them? It's a challenge. So Brent, distillery
0: tourism is booming in the U.S. Over 2,600 great distilleries sprinkled all throughout the country. Can you tell us about the experience visiting Desert Door and how important is tourism for the business to educate to introduce SOTOL,
1: and how critical is that? And are y'all leveraging that? 100% Chris, and we probably didn't understand it as well initially as we do now. We thought we understood the demographic that was driving trends based on some of the research data that we were privy to. And we thought that the tasting room out here at Desert Door was ultimately going to be more like a focus group, if you will, that we were going to see who was actually driving so that might help us focus our marketing a little bit tighter. But as this company has grown and as the awareness has grown, what we've seen is that Desert Door is agnostic of everything. Gender, race, socioeconomic, it is agnostic of all of those. things. And we've been blessed. We're open three and a half days a week, and we see over 60,000 people per year. Wow. At That's this amazing. Distillery. Texan,
0: and, Alistair, out of yeah, the
1: country, they come business. Out of the country, global. I've had people as far as Argentina and Australia in the Tasty room, And it's just been a lesson. What we now look to provide here at the Mothership is we believe that this is where you can get the most unique brand experience. It's the total immersion thing. And the tour is a part of that where you actually get to see raw materials, raw plants coming in, getting them steamed. You can see them getting processed and mashed. You can see them actually getting fermented, distilled, and bottled right here. And very few places can offer the full manufacturing experience. And we connect with those people. Mentioned that our core value was connection. And so that's where you build. They become evangelists, right? That's right. We also believe that in that connection, There's a reason why we call them spirits, but it's about that transportive mechanism that really great spirits provide for you. And that's allows you to connect with yourself spiritually, your friends, outdoors, music, but whatever is important to you in your life. So the desert door is a metaphor when you think about it. So every time you open that door, you're either opening up a door to Texas, you're opening a door to 10,000 years of history, Or the next time somebody comes here and visits here, has a great experience, and wherever they are in the world and they open the door, they're going to be right back here with me. It's a transporter. And you just came out with an oak age so tall, right? That's exciting. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that's the other thing for folks out in the spirit world that are aspiring distillers. It's helpful if you have a product that you can go to market with immediately There are other things like this that Mother Nature gets a vote on and it does take a little bit of time. We were blessed that we had a clear spirit that we could go to market with first and then tinker around with once we got our manufacturing up to speed. Like I mentioned previously, it took us about four plants per bottle. And then now, Chris, we're about four bottles per plant. We've completely inverted it. So that's the other part about the sustainability piece that I think most people think of sustainability and conservation from the agricultural aspect, it's equally as important with what you do with the resources that you take. We're fully invested and committed to that. We are. And to the end product, our spent bagasse, which is the dried up mulch, if you will, it goes to a feedlot in Mason, Texas, where it's off the charts, fiber, vitamins, minerals. There's almost zero protein and zero energy in it, but it is a nutritious fibrous filler For livestock. So we're end to end with sustainability and mood. So once we were able to not only satisfy the demands for our original, but also find a little spare to throw in a barrel, we started tinkering around with barrels. And we did this in the the home because it's really hard to find a barrel other than level three char on anything south of the 25 gallons. And at the time, I couldn't make 25 gallons. And we started tinkering around with that, and we we're like, this is fantastic. This is fantastic. On the nose, it's so similar to a really nice cognac or a bourbon. You're not drinking grape or corn. And so with that, we started barreling in virgin oak, level three char, Missouri white oak barrels. And we were started out with aging for a year, but we're well beyond that now. And it just provides additional depth and flavor on top of the earthy vegetal components of the original. Now you get the layers and the coffee, caramel, the vanilla, the cinnamon are all spice, Plus the color of the virgin apparel. It makes just beautiful cocktails. We have one here at the distillery. We call it the So Told Fashion, and it's just absolutely Love that supportive. Love that. One little plug, and y'all are featured
0: on Destination Distillery. That is the tourism platform that Discus released last summer. And really, this is all about driving tourism and going to Desert Door. In having these experiences is really what it's all about. And with all those, you say 300 plus thousand visitors a year? No,
1: 60,000. 60,000. All right, we'll get to 300 plus thousand. We're going to try to get to 300. We're going to. We're going to have to upgrade the parking situation. We already had to implement valet parking. So we're probably going to have to upgrade our parking sitch here. But you think about it, those 60,000, they become evangelists, right? right. And they're part of your education force around the world. Like I mentioned earlier, you know, it's about the team, right? And the team of people that we have here, those are my evangelists. And when you look at what they've built here, they have a 4.9 on Google. They have a 5.0 on Yelp. We were top 10 in the country on Yelp. Or best distilleries, and the only one in Texas. And it helps to have a great product, but you need wonderful people to tell Talking. that story. Buzz, That's absolutely. Right. So, with that, Brent, as
0: we close, one last question that we try to do with our guests. If you could have a Sotol with anybody, it could be someone famous from history or anybody, it could be someone from your personal life, who would that one person be? I'm going to try not to get too misty about this, but it'd be my mother. Oh, uh, God bless her, right? Yeah, we lost her. God or, bless we her. We lost her two weeks ago. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yep, and I lost my father 93, almost 94, at the end of May as well. But we know they're in heaven, and I'm sure your mama's proud of you too. Yeah, she so. was,
1: and I just, she did see the nascent stages of this. But it would have been a blessing if she could have seen how far this little science project, as I like to call it, has been received by the community. Let me just say, Brent,
0: on behalf of the Distilled Spirits Council, Spirit United, and just everybody in the industry, congratulations to you and your partners. Thank you for your service for our country. And the one word that comes to mind is perseverance. And for everybody, check out Tall. You're in what we call God's country, but when you're in the Austin area, go check out Desert Door and visit Brent and the team and try this fabulous product. It is a great story. So great cheers. Cheers to your mama as well. And I'm sure a life well lived. And thank you for everything that you're doing for the industry.
1: Thank you, Chris. I tell you what, as we are transitioning from a Texas brand to a brand from Texas, the partnership with you, with Discus and your staff and the support that we've received from you has just been absolutely overwhelming and I can't thank you enough. Awesome. Cheers. 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 See you soon.
0: That's all for today's episode of the Spirited Advocate Podcast. Thanks to our great guest, Brent Luby, It was really amazing to get a chance to speak with him and learn all about the amazing so tall that they are distilling at Desert Door Distillery in Texas. I'd also like to thank you for listening. And if you'd like what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. I'm Chris Swanger. This has been the Spirited Advocate podcast brought to you by the Distilled Spirits Council of the United States.